0: My name is Chris McLaughlin. I'm the discipleship pastor here. I get to bring God's word to you today. Uh, If you have your Bible there in front of you, open up to Romans chapter 13. It's where we're going to be today. Romans chapter 13. Now, um, typically for me, obeying the laws of our government is a pretty easy thing to do, okay? Uh, I will admit I struggle a little bit with keeping it under 35 on Smith Valley Road, okay? But uh, (laughs) for the most part, I do okay with keeping keeping the laws. But there are some laws on the books in our country that I'm like, how did we get to a place that we actually have a law like this? Like, they just seem so ridiculous. Like, did you know that in Southington, Connecticut, that silly string has been banned since 1996? Like, what happened? Like, what with the silly string thing? Or there's a city called Severance, Colorado, where up until last year, it, it was illegal to throw snowballs. Like, in Colorado, that's, that's, that's like a crime. Like, like it can't happen. Um, in Georgia, there's a law—this is crazy. Since 1961, this law has been on the books that it is illegal to eat fried chicken with utensils. In other words, like, if you're in Georgia and you sit down to have a plate of fried chicken, you better eat it with your fingers. It just ensures that every bite is finger looking good, Right? <laughs> Uh, in Massachusetts, did you know that it's it's actually illegal to curse at sporting events in Massachusetts? They made it illegal. I can just imagine, like, police officers walking up and down the aisles at a Red Sox game, handing out tickets. They must make a fortune. Like, (laughs) um, in Rhode Island, it's illegal to bite off someone's limbs. Yeah. How did we get that? I I mean, I suppose that's going to be helpful this year with the zombie apocalypse that's coming up, but... uh, (laughs) In New Jersey, you got to think about this one for a second. It is illegal to wear a bulletproof vest while you commit a crime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, In Arkansas, it's actually illegal to pronounce Arkansas incorrectly. You'll you'll get fined if you pronounce it (laughs) Arkansas. And my, my personal favorite, in my home state of California, in the city of Chico, you will receive a $500 fine for building or activating a nuclear weapon within city limits. (laughs) But outside of city limits. You know, you're all good. See, as American citizens, we are actually, we are called to obey the laws of our country. We're obligated to obey those laws. But right now, there are many in our nation who are beginning to reject the governing authorities because they don't agree with where our country is going. Our nation, right now more than ever, is becoming more and more politically divided. In this last election year, just in the last two months, we have seen all the usual jabs across the aisle, but the division and the the tension has ramped up more than we've seen in a long time. In fact, just in the last two months, we've seen a a complete lack of trust in our election system that, that has led to dozens of expensive court appeals, We've seen violence begin to break out in Washington, D.C., where on December 12th, I don't know if you guys saw this, but on December 12th, four people were stabbed and one person was shot because of the political tension that was going on. And now the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, he's calling really for cessation from the United States of America, and he's asking for other states to join him in this. I mean, this is where we are as a nation. And so as Christians, we find ourselves in the middle of a conflict. And it's not just a conflict of political ideals, but it's a conflict of personal identity. It really is for us as Christians. Because many Christians in our country are turning to something that's, that's called Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. This is this idea where it's, it's kind of a blending, it's a merging of our identity as Christians with our identity as Americans. It's it's kind of seeing them as being so intricately connected or even as one in the same. But see, as Christians, we have to separate those two. We have to separate them because those are very different identities. Just think about this for a second. While our American I, I identity is great, okay? While our, our um, uh, identity here as as citizens of the United States is an awesome thing, it's also very temporary and it's transient, okay? In other words, we are only American citizens as long as we're alive, as long as our nation exists, and as long as we're still citizens here. But our citizenship, our national citizenship, can change. We can go to a different country. We can can move away. Our Christian identity, on the other hand, is not temporary and is not transient. In fact, it is eternal and permanent, As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been made citizens of the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are already seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. And he tells us that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, right? So so when we confuse our, our Christian identity with our American identity, we start to run into some problems. I think, first of all, it distorts the intended purpose of the American system of government that we have. But it also begins to distort the Christian message. Now look, our system of government, I think, is wonderful. I think we live in the best nation in the world. Don't get me wrong. It's a remarkable achievement that 250 years ago, the founding fathers of our nation established a a really amazing, balanced, democratic republic. Right, It's an incredible thing. But while our nation is a blessing to us, it is not the kingdom of God. It is not the kingdom of God. It's not eternal. It's not unchanging. And so what that means for us is that we cannot put our ultimate hope in our leaders and in our system of government. As Christians, we have some big decisions to make about how we're going to respond in light of the current state of our government. And so this week and next week, we are doing a short 2 uh, message series called Citizens, where we're going to talk about this idea of how how do we balance being a citizen of the kingdom of God while also being a citizen of this nation. Now you're not going to want to miss next week. Next week we have a guest speaker who's going to be here. His name is Josh Hirschberger. Josh is a uh, he's a lawyer. He's also a pastor. He's got a, a podcast called The Good Citizen Podcast. And what it, what he does is he um, he basically advocates for, for building relationships between the church and the state here in Indiana. And so he's going to be here next week to bring the word to us then. So you're not going to want to miss that. But today we're going to read a passage of scripture that I think can really help us to understand how to balance this idea of these two identities that we have. Our identity as, as, as sons and daughters of the king and our identity as citizens of this great nation. And so we're going to look at Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. I want to invite you to stand as we read this, as I read this out. So this is Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Our Father, in this really difficult climate that we live in, we pray for wisdom and guidance from your word on how to respond rightly. And so, God, by your word today, would you minister to us and help us to understand how to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, everyone. This is a tough teaching. Just reading through this at first glance, you're probably like, oh man, there's some heavy stuff in here. And so I just want to walk through this today verse by verse with you so that we can understand what, what the Apostle Paul through, that really who, who, what Jesus through the Apostle Paul is telling us. So let's look at verse one. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So let's, let's pause right there. Who are the governing authorities? Who is he talking about? Well, think about this just for a second. Paul is writing a letter in the first century to Christians who are living in Rome. And so the governing authorities at that time would be the Roman emperor, right? To uh, probably local governors, regional governors, probably the Roman soldiers who are enforcing the law. And he's probably also talking about leaders in the Jewish synagogues, uh, elders and pastors that are, that are leading home churches. He's probably talking about all of those, all of these different governing authorities, and so let's take that idea and let's bring that into our context. If Paul was writing this letter today, who would he be talking about? Well, he's, he's talking about our, like our national leaders. Our national leaders are going to be you know, our, our president, our Congress, Supreme Court justices, people like that. Talking about state and local rulers. So we're talking about governors, mayors, judges, our school district, right? The law enforcement. Uh, We have military, police officers. Those would be included. I think that we could include church leaders. The Bible has a number of passages that talk about about submission to church leaders. And so what this is kind of looking at is how God has appointed Pastor Scott and our elders to lead our church. And so we are in submission to them. I think it also includes things like parents. If you are a child living in a home with your parents, your parents are governing authorities that you're, that the Lord has appointed over you. your teachers those are authorities that are that are over you your bosses, managers those are authorities that God has appointed over you so let's look at verse one again if we look at that one more time with that in mind, look at the command that Paul is is instructing us to obey. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so what he's saying here is that if anyone, if anyone has any position of authority, then they were given that authority by God. They were given that authority by God. Now, this raises a number of questions because when we start to think about what this means, actually, this is really a mind-blowing concept. I mean, just think about our president, for example, all right? Our, the way that we, that we find our president is through this system where we have a, an election, right? And then through the popular vote and then the electoral college, we arrive at who our president is going to be. Millions of people come together to elect a president. But what this passage is telling us is that behind the scenes, even though this is all happening and we're all going to the polls and voting and all that sort of stuff, that even though that that's happening, behind the scenes, God is at work. And what he's doing is he's working in the lives of people to bring about the leader that he wants to have in power. It's mind blowing, it's absolutely mind blowing. This is a concept in theology that it's difficult to understand, but but it's a very important one. And it's this concept in theology called compatibilism. It's this idea that, that on one side, we all make free choices. We make choices out of our hearts and we do this every day. We make these decisions. At the same time, over here, you have God who is sovereign over all things. And he's bringing, he's really bringing everything to to, to just do exactly what he wants it to do, to bring about the result that he wants. And when we think about those two things, we think that they're not compatible, but what this, is, what this idea is is that the Bible is really saying this, these two ideas are compatible. That's why it's called compatibilism, that these two things really work together, and we don't always understand why. We see this in the story of Joseph, right? So like, if you, if you re- remember the story of Joseph back at the end of Genesis, Joseph had 12 brothers. They were all super jealous of him, right? And so the brothers get really angry at him, and they beat him up, and they throw him down into a pit. And they sell him off into slavery. Joseph ends up rising to power and saving the entire known world from a famine. And at the end of the story, Joseph is standing there before his brothers, and this is what he says in Genesis fifty twenty. He says, You meant evil against me, talking to his brothers, but God meant it for good. He's expressing compatibilism. They're making those decisions, those evil decisions out of of their heart, and yet God is working all that out for the purpose that he has in mind. And so God's doing the same thing when he appoints our leaders. Now this raises even more questions, doesn't it? Because what does that mean when there's an evil leader? What does that mean when there's a ruler who is doing terrible things? Like, just in the Bible, like, go to the book of Exodus, you have a pharaoh who is oppressing and enslaving millions of Hebrews. Or in the New Testament, when we read how Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt to get away from King Herod who is killing millions of baby boys to kill the newborn king of the Jews. Or, when the early church was around, there was an emperor named Nero who was probably crazy, and he um, basically he tortured and murdered Christians and burned down half of Rome in the process. You can fast forward to the 20th century and you have rulers like, like Hitler and Stalin. You have numerous oppressive leaders in African nations. Saddam Hussein, right? I mean, you just think about this, these are all leaders of these nations and what this is saying is that God has appointed them. God has put them into this position of power. So the question then is, why would God do that? Why would God, why would God actually bring an evil ruler into power? And here's, here's the thing with this, is that we may not always know the reasons why. It may be to bring his judgment, it may be to teach us. It may be to discipline us. It may be to sanctify us. It may be to test our faith. But on this side of eternity, we will not fully understand what God is doing. But I think that we can be sure of a couple things. The first thing is that while God appoints these rulers to power, it does not mean that God condones their actions. It does not mean that God condones their actions. In fact, God may use an evil ruler's actions for his good purposes, But those rulers are still responsible for their actions, and God will still judge them. In fact, this is in the Bible. This is, this is my, am I blowing anyone's minds right now? Like, (laughs) this is a crazy, crazy thing. So there was this time when the nation of Israel had divided into two nations, and the northern kingdom of Israel existed for 200 years and did not have one single good king. Every king was wicked. And after 200 years, God decided to send King Sargon II, the king of Assyria, to come down and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and then take the survivors and scatter them around the known world. And when God did this, through the prophet Isaiah, this is what he said. This is Isaiah 10, verse 5. This is God speaking. He says, Ah, Assyria. The rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. Against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. This is what God did. But if we jump down to verse 12, look at how God is going to finish this up. He says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So this tells us something really important. It tells us that God is not condoning the actions of the king of Assyria that he's using the evil actions, the actions that the king is, is choosing to do out of his own heart. He's using that to accomplish his purposes. But then at the same time, it has to be judged. It has to be punished. And so he's going to come back and punish the king of Assyria as well. So God is not condoning those actions. And God is not the author of evil. But he can direct that evil to accomplish his good plan. So I think that tells us another thing. It tells us, it reminds us that God's plan is always going to have a good and holy purpose. We can come back to verses like Romans eight twenty eight, right? A really great verse to memorize says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even when we don't understand what God may be doing in the midst of something like that, we can trust him. We can trust him in the middle of it, and that actually leads us to our response as Christians. How should we respond? How should we respond to the current state of our government? I want to give you, I want to give you three ways that the Bible is telling us how to respond. Right from this, from this text, I, I think that the that God is telling us that we should one, we should willingly submit. Two, we should diligently pray. And three, we should give what is due. So let's look at verses one and two again, back in, back in Romans 13. Verses one and two says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So, the first response that we should have as Christians is to willingly submit ourselves to every authority that God has placed above us. So, if that's our government, if that's our parents, our teachers, our bosses, our response is to willingly submit ourselves. To them. Now, this is hard for us, and especially when we disagree with them, right? This rails against us in so many—or we rail against this in so many ways. And why is that? Well, first is sin, of course. Submission to any authority means denial of self, <laughs> right? It means you got to put your own desires aside. you got to set those down and— and really die to yourself so that you could submit to someone else. And our sinful flesh wants none of that, right? But, but if you think about it, look, think about our, how our American culture is founded. Our, our, our American DNA. We were founded on rebellion. We, we, we were part of another nation that rebelled against that nation and won our freedom. And so, you know what, as a culture, think about this. We love rebellion stories, we love it. Like, okay, Star Wars. Let's talk about Star Wars for a second. It's a rebellion story, right? <laughs> um, we love those stories of those, those people that go and they fight against the man and they win, right? It's part of our DNA. It's part of our DNA. And so the point that we, I think we have to see here is that we're really a product of our sinful condition combined with the philosophies of our time. And it's no wonder that submission to authority is so tough for us. But the Bible, which was given to us to complete us, over and over again tells us that our job is to submit to these authorities. Like, I mean, you go back to the Ten Commandments, talks about submitting to your parents, honor your father and mother, right? The Bible teaches us to submit to our earthly masters, to our bosses and our managers. That's in Colossians chapter 3. The Bible talks about submitting to our church leaders. That's in Hebrews chapter 13. The Bible talks about over and over again submitting to every authority that God has placed over us. Not only is that in Romans 13, but it's also in 1 Peter chapter 2. So all these places we see that the Bible is incredibly consistent in this idea of submission to authorities. And what that tells us, you guys, this is so cool, because what that tells us is that when we willingly submit to our earthly authorities, it's much more than an act of obedience to them. In fact, what this is saying is that when we submit to earthly authorities, it's actually a submission to God who is the ultimate authority over all. He is the the Lord of lords, right? And so by submitting to our earthly authorities, it's it's actually an act of worship to God. So think about what that means practically. You're driving down Smith Valley Road. You're feeling like wanting to go a little bit faster than the speed limit. You have an opportunity right then and there to worship God. That's what this is saying. (laughs) That by submitting to your boss is actually an act of worship to God. That kids, by submitting to your parents and doing what your parents say is an act of worship to God. Because all of these authorities have been placed above you by God. Does that make sense? I think it's, it's just an incredible thing to think about. Now, this does raise another question. A really difficult one. When is it okay to actually resist authority? When is it okay to do this? Because this passage in verse 2 especially makes it really clear that if we resist authority that we will incur the judgment of God. So is it ever the right thing to do to challenge the authorities above us? I think that Paul gives us a general answer to this question. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, What I think he's explaining here is the role of government. When government is operating correctly, when leaders are operating correctly, it should have the role of promoting and praising the good and then prohibiting and punishing the evil. That's the role of the authorities that are over us, to promote and praise the good and prohibit and punish the evil. But when an authority has completely reversed this, when they promote and praise evil and prohibit and punish good, then it is time for Christians who know what God has set to be good and evil by his word to speak up, to take action. And in fact, this is exactly what our founding fathers of this nation had done. You guys know the Declaration of Independence, right? Okay, and you probably know this line. It starts out like this. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? We've heard that before. Let's keep reading. Look what it says. That to secure these rights... Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. He's he's basically pulling that principle from Romans 13. Like, this is what the government is supposed to be doing. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. The founding fathers of our nation understood this biblical principle and what they saw was that the government that they were under had reversed the good and the evil. And so only when the governing authorities have become so corrupt that the only way to prevent massive evil is to instigate revolution. That's the only time when that would be allowed. Otherwise, what we do is nothing more than civil disobedience, and that does not honor God. Does that make sense? And so, really, the first thing that we are called to do in this is to willingly submit. But the second thing that we're called to do is to diligently pray. And I think that we see this very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter two, it says this. It says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And he says how to do this for all people. He says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the purpose of praying for our leaders is actually so that they would make wise and godly decisions that would ultimately result in peace and welfare for the people they govern. It's 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 really a prayer for us and for peace. This is really tough for us to do again when we disagree with our leaders. Like actually praying for our leaders, we're like, wow, I, I don't really want to do that sometimes. But I think that part of that is because honestly, we forget that they're human. We forget that they're people just like us. We forget that they're fallen, that they make mistakes, they're not gonna get everything right, that they that just like you and me, that they have pride, that they have anger, that they struggle with sin. Think that we forget that they have emotions, they get hurt. They have a history that that they carry with them every day. Many leaders have families whom they love and they want the very best for. But all that we know of them is really just these talking heads that we see on TV or on the internet. These, These sort of icons that are made to stand for an ideal rather than actually being a human being that God created in their image, in his image. There's a man named Kurt Weaver, He's the director of what's called the Church Ambassador Network in, in Pennsylvania. And he does what's very similar to what Josh Hirschberger does, the guy that's going to be here next week. Um, he does the same kind of thing over in Pennsylvania, building bridges between the church and the state. So one day, Kurt set up a meeting to talk with one of a man in the state legislature. And his goal was simply just to meet with him and pray with him. But what happened was, as the man... End up coming in a little late for the meeting. He looked really flustered. And he's so used to people just coming in and trying to like get their bill passed or get something from him or whatever. And so he gets, sits down, he's kind of frustrated. And the man, Kurt, just sits, sits there and is like, hey, you know, we just wanted to pray with you. Um, what's really weighing on your heart right now and how can we pray for you? And the man just broke down just started sobbing right in front of him. Not only was this an unexpected thing for him, this unexpected just grace to him to have someone come and pray with him, but, but that morning he and his wife had just miscarried their baby. And so Kurt and his friend got to minister to this man in one of the most difficult times in his life. It's so easy to forget that they are people. It's so easy to forget that they're human, that God created in his image. And so we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our parents. We need to pray for our teachers. We need to pray for our bosses and our managers. What should we pray for? You guys, we should pray for their salvation. Right? And it's not just a benefit to them, it's a benefit to you too. Because think about this. If they, if they get saved, that means that they receive the Spirit of God that's going to transform their mind. And so they're going to make better decisions down the road because of what God has done in them. So man, pray for their salvation. Right? Pray for their health and their well-being. Pray for their health and their well-being. I mean, how can we expect our nation or any organization that we're a part of to be healthy if the lives of our leaders aren't healthy. So pray for them. Pray for for their wisdom. Pray for careful discernment. Many of our leaders have to make dozens of decisions a day, decisions that affect us. And they need to have discernment and wisdom to be able to decide what's most important And how to make those decisions, those great decisions quickly. We need to be praying for our leaders. Okay? So willingly submit. Diligently pray. The last thing that Paul instructs us here to do is to give what is due. This is in, uh, back in Romans 13 verses 6 and 7. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is saying that whatever authorities you have in your life, the Christian response is to give them honor, respect, and payment that they're due. But not because of how well they perform their job but because they have been appointed by God to that position of authority. This is, this is really hard. This is giving our leaders really a gift of unmerited favor. It's giving them incredible grace. And this grace that's simply based on their status, their position, and not based on what they've done. Submission to authorities, again, is difficult, especially when we disagree with them. And scripture tells us that without God's help, this is impossible for us to do. That without faith, it's impossible to do these things. In order to do this, we need God's help. We need God's grace in our lives to give us the ability to humble ourselves and to put our desires to death so that we can obey what God is asking us to do. You guys, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. I mean, think about this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't want to go to the cross. He pleaded with the Lord and said, God, would you take this cup from me? But he decided to go to the cross anyway. He went, to the cross and he died this most painful death not because you deserved it. Not because of anything that you did. Not because he owed it to you. But he went to the cross putting his desires aside because he loved God more. He loved the Father more. Not only is this what Jesus did for us, but this is the very reason that he did what he did. He went to the cross so that he could take us, a people who were once full of pride and arrogance, a people who sought to be their own masters and rule by their own authority and make them into a people who love God more than anything else people who are no longer living in rebellion against God. A people who actually can give respect and honor to people even when they don't deserve it. You guys, only the transforming power of the gospel can do that. So our response to authority, the Christian response to authority where we willingly submit, where we diligently pray, where we give what is due, You guys, it's really a response to the transforming work of grace within us. It's really a response to the the work of grace that God has done within us. You know, God has consistently taught this idea of submission to authority, and He did so in the darkest time in the history of God's people the Babylonian exile. See, the southern kingdom of Judah got, got destroyed by the Babylonians and 90% of those people were killed. The, 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 the 10% that were left, they were taken into exile into Babylon. And all of the false prophets of that day were screaming out, Hey, don't worry about it. God's got this. He's going to get us back into the land. These Babylonians are going down. They're, they're prophesying all these things. There was one prophet named Jeremiah who came forward, and he's like, that's not what I'm hearing from God at all. And so he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to the the exiles, the Jewish exiles that were living in Babylon. And this is what it said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's his instruction. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Give your daughters in marriage. Oh, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What? What? God, this enemy nation that came down and killed our families and took us as captives into exile, you want us to pray on its behalf? You want us to seek its welfare? Are you serious? He says yes. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Listen to what he says. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, listen to this, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. 70 years. God's plan for them was that for 70 years they were going to live as exiles in a foreign country enemy nation and that they were to learn to pray for that nation and to seek its welfare and most of those people that received this letter were going to be dead before God returned again before God would bring them back to the land they were never going to see that freedom again church this is a perfect picture for us today We do not live in our ultimate home. We are sojourners and ambassadors in a foreign enemy nation. Our hope should never be in any kingdom of this world, but it is only in our God who is bringing his kingdom here to earth. And so God's plan for you is that you would live peacefully And seek the welfare of this nation while we wait for him to return. And so may you extend unmerited favor to the authorities that God has placed over us. May you willingly submit and diligently pray and give what is due while we wait for the Lord's return. Let's pray. Our Father, this is really hard. So often we, we look at our leaders, we look at the decisions that are being made, the things that are being done in our country, and we we disagree. We It makes us so angry. We get so frustrated to see the way that things are going. And God, we just want things to be a certain way. But you have not taken us and put us into that position of power you you've appointed others to do that we don't know why you've but you've put those people there and so god we want to trust you right now in the midst of this we want to trust you that whatever happens in our government lord that you have a good and holy purpose that is being worked out so god would you help us with that but ultimately god would you would you help us help us to be people who will not only just not only submit and pray and give what is due help us to be people who are seeking the welfare of our nation while at the same time we re- Just remembering that our hope is not in what is happening here but it is it's in you and it's in this coming kingdom oh God we can't wait for that day when your kingdom comes and we don't have to worry about this stuff anymore (laughs) we pray for that day to come may your kingdom come God but we pray God that while we're here that you would give us the grace and the strength to do the things you're calling us to do We love you, Lord, and we trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.